Chapter number 20 of my first book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Jackson. My first book by Various. Chapter 20. Dead Man's Rock by Q. I cherish no parental illusions about Dead Man's Rock. It is two or three years since I read a page of that bloodthirsty romance, and my only copy of it was found, the other day, in turning out the lumber room at the top of the house. Later editions have been allowed to appear with all the inaccuracies and crudities of the first. On page 116, Bombay is still situated in the Bay of Bengal, and may continue to adorn that shore. The error must be amusing, since unknown friends continue to write and confess themselves tickled by it and it is stupid to begin amending a book in which you have lost interest. But though this is my attitude towards Dead Man's Rock, I can still look back on the writing of it as on an amusing adventure. It was begun in the late summer of 1886, and was my first attempt at telling a story on paper. I am careful to say on paper, because in childhood I was telling myself stories from morning to night. Tens of thousands of small boys are doing the same every day in the year, but I should be sorry to guess how much of my time, between the ages of seven and thirteen, must have been given up to weaving these childish epics. They were curious jumbles, the characters, of which I had a constant set, being drawn indiscriminately from Mort d'Arthur, Bunyan's Holy War, Pope's Iliad, Ivanhoe, and a book of fairy tales by Holm Lee, as well as from history, and the themes ranging from battles and tournaments to cricket, wrestling, and sailing machines. Anachronisms never troubled the storyteller. The Duke of Wellington would cheerfully break a lance with Captain Credence or Tristram of Lyonnais, and I rarely made up a football fifteen without including Hardicanute, whom I loved for his name, Hector, dear for his own sake, and Wamba, who supplied the comic interest and scored off Thersites. They were brave companions, but at the age of thirteen they deserted me suddenly or perhaps after reading Mr. Stevenson's chapter on dreams, I had better say it was the Piskies, the small people, who deserted me. They alone know why, for their pensioner had never betrayed a single one of their secrets, or why it was in these later times, when he sells their confidences for money, they have come back to help him, though more sparingly. Three or four of the little stories in Knots and Crosses are but translated dreams, and there are others in my notebook, but now I never compose without some pain, whereas in the old days I had but to sit alone in a corner or take a solitary walk and invite them, and they did all the work. But one summer evening I summoned them and met with no response. Without warning, the tales had come to an end. From my first school at Newton Abbott, I went to Clifton, and from Clifton in my nineteenth year to Oxford. It was here that the old desire to weave stories began to come back. Mr. Stevenson's Treasure Island was the immediate cause. I had been scribbling all through my school days, had written a prodigious quantity of bad reflective poetry, and burnt it as soon as I really began to reflect, and was now plying the Oxford magazine with light verse, a large proportion of which was lately reprinted in a thin volume with the title of Green Bays. But I wrote little or no prose. My prose essays at school were execrable, I had followed after false models for a while, and when gently made aware of this by the sound and kindly scholar who looked over our sixth-form essays at Clifton, 
had turned dispirited and wrote scarcely at all. Though reading great quantities of fiction, I had, as has been said, no thought of telling a story, and so far as I knew, no faculty. The desire, at least, was awakened by Treasure Island, and, in explanation of this, I can only quote the gentleman who reviewed my first book in the Athenium, and observed the great wits jump and lesser wits jump with them. That is just the truth of it. I began as a pupil and imitator of Mr. Stevenson, and was lucky in my choice of a master. The germ of Dead Man's Rock was a curious little bit of family lore, which I may extract from my father's history of Polpero, a small haven on the Cornish coast. The Richard Quiller, of whom he speaks, is my great-grandfather. In the old home of the Quillers, at Polpero, there was hanging on a beam a key, which we as children regarded with respect and awe, and never dared to touch, for Richard Quiller had put the key of his quadrant on a nail, with strong injunctions that no one should take it off until his return, which never happened, and there, I believe, it still hangs. His brother John served for several years as commander of a hired armed lugger, employed in carrying dispatches in the French War, Richard accompanying him as a subordinate officer. They were engaged in the inglorious bombardment of Flushing in 1809. Some short time after this, they were taken, after a desperate fight with a pirate, into Algiers, but were liberated on the severe remonstrances of the British consul. They returned to their homes in the most miserable plight, having lost their all, except their Bible, much valued then by the unfortunate sailors, and now by a descendant in whose possession it is. About the year 1812, the same brothers sailed to the island of Tenerife in an armed merchant ship, but after leaving that place were never heard of. Here, then, I had the simple apparatus for a mystery, for, of course, the key must be made to unlock something far more uncommon than a quadrant and I still think it a capital apparatus, had I only possessed the wit to use it properly. There was romance in this key, that was obvious enough, and I puzzled over it for some weeks, by the end of which my plot had grown to something like this, a family living in poverty, though heirs to great wealth, this wealth buried close to their door, and the key to unlock it hanging over their heads from morning to night. It was soon settled, too, that this family should be Cornish, and the scene laid on the Cornish coast, Cornwall being the only corner of the earth with which I had more than a superficial acquaintance. So far, so good. But what was the treasure to be? And what was the reason that stood between its inheritors and their enjoyment of it? As it happened, these two questions were answered together. The small library at Trinity, a delightful room where Dr. Johnson spent many quiet hours of work upon his dictionary, is fairly rich in books of old travel and discovery. Fine folios, for the most part, filling the shelves on your left as you enter. To the study of these I gave up a good many hours that should have been spent on ancient history of another pattern, and more directly profitable for greats, and in one of them, purchase, I think, but will not swear, first came on the great ruby of Ceylon. Not long after, note in Yule's edition of Marco Polo set my imagination fairly in chase of this remarkable gem, and I hunted up all the accessible authorities. The size of this ruby, as thick as a man's arm, says Marco Polo, while Mondeville, who is an artist, and lied with exactitude, puts it at a foot in length and five fingers in girth. Its color, like unto fire, and the mystery and completeness of its disappearance, combine to fascinate me. No form of riches is so romantic as a precious stone with a heart in it and a history. I had only to endow it with a curse proportionate to its size and beauty, and I had all that a storyteller could possibly want. 
but even a treasure hunt is a poor affair unless you have two parties vying for the booty, and a curse that can hardly be worked effectively until you introduce the fighting element, and make destiny strike her blows through the passions, hate, greed, etc., of her victims. I had shaped my story to this point. The treasure was to be buried by a man who had slain his comrade and only confidant in order to enjoy the booty alone, and had afterwards become aware of the curse attached to its possession. And the descendants of these two men were to be rivals in the search of it, each side possessing half of the clue. It was at this point that, like George the Fourth, I invented a buckle. My buckle had two clasps, and on these the secret of the treasure was so engraved as to become intelligible only when they were united. My plot had now taken something like a shape, but it had one serious defect. It would not start to walk. Coax it as I might, it would not budge. Even the worst book must have a beginning. This reflection was no less distressing than obvious, for mine had none. And there is no saying it would ever have found one but for a lucky accident. In the long vacation of 1885, I spent three weeks or a month at the Lizard, pollocking and reading Plato. Knowing at the time comparatively little of this corner of the coast, I had brought one or two guidebooks and local histories in the bottom of my portmanteau. One evening, after a stiff walk along the cliffs, I put the Republic aside for a certain history and description of the parish of Mullion by its vicar, the Reverend E.G. Harvey, and came upon a passage that immediately shook my scraps of invention into their proper places. The passage in question was a narrative of the wreck of the Jonkheer Meester van der Waal, a Dutch bark, on the night of March 25, 1867. I cannot quote at length the vicar's description of this wreck, but in substance and many of its details it is the story of the Belle Fortune in Denben's Rock. The vessel broke up in the night, and drowned every soul on board except a Greek sailor, who was found early next morning clambering about the rocks under cliff between Polurian and Poljew. This man's behavior was mysterious from the first, and his evidence at the inquest held on the drowned bodies of his shipmates was, to say the least, extraordinary. He said, My name is Giorgio Buffani. I was seaman on board the ship which belonged to Dordrecht. I joined the ship at Batavia, but I do not know the name of the ship or the name of the captain. Being shown, however, the official list of Dutch East Indiamen, he pointed to one built in 1854, the Cosmopolite, Captain Koenig. He then told his story of the disaster, which there was no one to contradict, and the jury returned a verdict of accidentally drowned. The Greek made his bow and left the neighborhood. Just after the inquest, Mr. Broad, Dutch consul at Falmouth, arrived, bringing with him the captain of two Dutch East Indiamen then lying at Falmouth. One of them asked at once, Is it Class Lammerts? Being told that Cosmopoliet was the name of the wreck ship, he said, I don't believe it. The Cosmopoliet wouldn't be due for a fortnight almost. It must be Class Lammerts vessel. The vicar, who had now come up, showed a scrap of flannel he had picked up with 6KL marked upon it. Ah, said the Dutchman, it must be so. It must be the Jonkier. But she had been returned Cosmopoliet at the inquest, so there the matter rested. On the Friday following, however, pursues the vicar, when Mr. Broad and this Dutch captain again visited Mullion, the first thing handed to them was a parchment which had been picked up meanwhile, and this was none other than the Masonic Diploma of Klaas van Lemmerts. Here, then, was no room for doubt. The ship was identified as the Jonkier Meester van der Wald van Puttershoek, Captain Klaas van Lemmerts, 650 tons register, homeward bound from the East Indies, 
with a cargo of sugar, coffee, spices, and some banca tin. The value of the ship and cargo would be between 40000 and 50000 It may be added that on the afternoon before the wreck, the vessel had been seen to miss stays more than once in her endeavor to beat off the land and generally to behave as if handled by an uncountably clumsy crew. Although folks on shore had grave suspicions that there was mutiny or extreme disorder of some kind on board, but of this nothing was ever certainly known. I think this narrative was no sooner read than digested into the scheme of my romance, now for some months neglected and almost forgotten. But the final school of literary humanors loomed unpleasantly near, and just a year passed before I could turn my discovery to account. The following August found me at Petworth in Sussex, lodging over a clockmaker's shop that looked out upon the market square. Petworth is quiet, and at that time I knew scarcely a soul in the place, but lovely scenery lies all around it, and on a hot afternoon you may do worse than stretch yourself on the slopes above the weald and smoke and do nothing. There was one small common in particular, close to the monument at the top of the park and just outside the park wall, where I spent many hours looking across the blue country to Blackdown and lazily making up my mind about the novel. In the end, it was some time in September, I called on the local stationer and brought a large heap of superior fool's cap. A traveling Waxworth company was unpacking its caravan in the square outside my window on the morning when I pulled in my chair and lightheartedly wrote Dead Man's Rock, A Romance, by Q, at the top of the first sheet of foolscap. The initial was my old initial of the Oxford Magazine Verses, and the title had been settled on for some time before. Staying with some friends on the Cornish coast, I had been taken to a picnic, or some similar function, on a beach, where they showed me a pillar-shaped rock standing boldly up from the sands and veined with curious red streaks resembling bloodstains. I want a story written about that rock, a lady of the party had said, something really bloodthirsty. Slaughter Rock might do for the name. But my title was really borrowed from the Dodman, locally called Deadman, our promontory east of Falmouth, between Varian and St. Austell Bays. I had covered two pages of fool's cap before the brass band of the waxwork show struck up and drove me out of doors and along the road that leads to the railway station, the only dull road around Petworth, and chosen now for that very reason. A good half of that morning's work was afterwards torn up, but I felt at the time that the enterprise was going well. I had written slowly but easily, and of course believed that I had found my vocation and would always be able to write easily, most vain delusion for in six years and a half I have recaptured the fluency of that morning not half a dozen times. Still, I continued to take lively interest in my story and wrote it very steadily, finishing book one before my return to Oxford. It surprised me, though, that for all my interest in it, the story gave me little or no emotion. Once only did I get a genuine thrill, and that was at the point where young Jasper finds the sailor's cap, page 25, and why at this point more than another is past explaining. In later efforts, I have written several pages with a shaking pen and amid dismal signs of grief, and on revision, have usually had to tear those pages up. On the whole, my short experience goes against civis me flare dolendum est primum ipsi tibi. But if on revision an author is moved to tears or laughter by any part of his work, then he may reckon pretty safely upon it, no matter with how stony a gravity it was written. Book one, just half the tale, was finished then and put aside. The Oxford Michaelmas term was beginning, and there were lectures to be prepared, but this was not all the reason. 
To tell the truth, I had wound up my story into very pretty coil, and how to unwind it was past my contriving. When the book appeared, its critics agreed in pronouncing part one to be a deal better than part two, and they were right. For book two is little more than a violent cutting of half a dozen knots that had been tied in the gayest of spirits, and it must be owned, moreover, that the long arm of coincidence was invoked to perform a great part of the cutting. For the time, however, the unfinished manuscript lay in the drawer of my writing table, and I went back to Virgil and Aristophanes and scribbled more verses for the Oxford magazine. None of my friends knew at the time of my excursion into fiction, but one of them possesses the cutest eye in Oxford, and with just a perceptible twinkle in it, he asked me suddenly, one evening towards the end of term, if I had yet begun to write a novel. The shot was excellently fired, and I surrendered my manuscript at once, the more gladly because believing in his judgment. Next morning he asserted that he had sat up half the night to read it. His look was of the freshest, but he came triumphantly out of cross-examination and urged me to finish the story. In my elated mood, I would have promised anything and set to work at once to think out the rest of the plot, but it was not until the Easter vacation that I finished the book in a farmhouse at the head of Wastwater. Another friend was with me, who, in the intervals of climbing, put all his enthusiasm into Aristotelian logic while I hammered away at the immortal product, as we termed it by consent. It was further agreed that he should abstain from looking at a line of it until the whole was written, a compact which I have not heard he found any difficulty in keeping. Indeed, there was plenty to occupy us both without the book. Snow lay thick on the fells that spring, and the glissading was excellent. We had found, or thought we had, a new way up the Mickledore Cliffs, and Mr. Gladstone had just introduced his first home rule bill and made the newspapers, which reached us a day late, very good reading. However, the manuscript was finished and read with sincere, if discriminating, approval on the eve of our departure. The next step was to find a publisher. My earliest hopes had inclined upon my friend, Mr. Arrowsmith of Bristol, who, I hoped, might remember me as having for a time edited the Cliftonian. But the book was clearly too long for his railway library, and on this reflection I determined to try the publishers of Treasure Island. Mr. Lyleton Gell, of the Clarendon Press, was kind enough to provide a letter of introduction. The manuscript went to Messrs. Castle and Company, and I fear the end of my narrative must be even duller than the beginning. Messrs. Castle accepted the book and have published all its successors. The inference to be drawn from this is pleasant and obvious, and I shall be glad if my readers will draw it. It is the rule, I find, to conclude such a confession as this with a paragraph or so in abuse of the literary calling, to parade oneself before the youth of merry England as the Spartans paraded their drunken helot to mourn the expense of energies that in any other profession would have fetched a nobler pecuniary return. I cannot do this at any rate. I cannot do it yet. My calling ties me to no office stool, makes me no man's slave, compels me to no action that my soul condemns. It sets me free from town life, which I loathe, and allows me to breathe clean air, to exercise limbs as well as brain, to tread good turf and wake up every morning to the sound and smell of the sea and that wide prospect which to my eyes is the dearest on earth. All happiness must be purchased with a price, though people seldom recognize this, and part of the price is that, living thus, a man can never amass a fortune. But as it is extremely unlikely that I could have done this in any pursuit, I may claim to have the better of the bargain. Certain gentlemen who have preceded me in this series have spoken of letters as of any ordinary characteristic pursuit. Naturally, therefore, they report unfavorably, 
but they seem to me to prove the obvious. Literature has her own pains, her own rewards, and it scarcely needs demonstration that one who can only bring to these a bagman's estimate had very much better be a bagman than an author. End of chapter 20